Good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship, and I am excited to welcome you to the first installment in our series on heaven. All the month of May, during the Sundays of May, we are going to be looking at what the Bible has to say about heaven. And uh, in our culture today, heaven can be used to describe a candy bar. It's heavenly, okay, or something like this. And uh, we can use heaven for anything that's just better than Tuesday. But the Bible describes heaven as in, in, in many ways, but it talks about it always as a real thing. It's not just an adjective of things that are good. It's a real place. And so it's God's home, and it's a place that he's prepared for us uh, and for all those who put their faith in Christ after we die. And so it's going to be a wonderful place uh, for us to be. And so we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be answering a series of questions. Today, inside your bulletin, we're going to take the first question, what is heaven like? And we're going to be looking at uh, a number of verses from John chapter, uh, John's Revelation, the Revelation to John 21. And um, we're going to be talking about what heaven is like today and the weeks to come. We'll be talking about what kind of bodies will we have, what will we do there, and will we know each other, will we be married, all kinds of questions. And we're going to talk about, hey, what, is the, what does the Bible say about those things? And so today, we're going to start with what is heaven like. If you need a pen to fill in the blanks, by the way, um, please just raise your hand, and one of the ushers will be coming up down the aisles to bring one to you. I want to welcome the folks at Pike Road, the folks at uh, Cloverdale, and the folks that are uh, getting, us, uh, getting things set up already. And with Tumco, we hope to be going there soon. Um, but uh, today, we'll be talking about heaven. And here's another interesting thing about heaven. I'm often asked, well, well, why do we need to think about heaven? Well, we need to think about heaven, not just in the abstract sense. We need to think about heaven the same way that high school students need to think about what they're going to do after graduation or college students need to do after they graduate. I mean, can you imagine a college student graduating not having any idea what they're going to do after college? Yeah, me neither. Uh, but anyway, yeah, yeah, it could happen. But you know what? If you're thinking about what you're going to do as a career while you're going to school, that changes the way you study. If you're thinking about where you want to go to college and what, what school you'd like to be accepted to, that changes the way you study in high school. If you think about how you're going to live for eternity, well, that changes the way you're going to live right now. And so the Bible speaks about death like a graduation. And we're in school now to prepare our souls for heaven. And so when we talk about it today, we're not just going to talk about heaven in the abstract. We're going to talk about, well, how does this apply to our life today and all throughout this series? And so you're going to find out there's a lot of life application to this. And I'm excited to share this with you because it's good stuff. And um, as always, God's word is amazing. And we're going to go to it again today. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be here today. I thank you that John was faithful to record what you revealed to him when he had glimpses of heaven. I pray, Lord, you'll speak, that you'll move me out of the way, and you'll use the words that we talk about together today to prepare our souls for eternity with you. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Well, three things I want to say about heaven today. The first is this. Heaven is a place that is free from pain and sorrow and death. Heaven is a place that is free from pain and sorrow and death. How do I know that? Revelation 21, the first four verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Jerusalem, by the way, as John would have uh, experienced it, and to the people, to the Jewish audience who would have received these things, uh, Jerusalem was the capital city of the Jewish people. It was the center where the temple was built, Solomon's temple, and where David had made that the capital. David, the man after God's own heart. 
And this was the place, the center, where people came to, to worship God and get right with him. And so it was the city that belonged to the people of God. And so here was a new Jerusalem, the, the capital of heaven, if you will, uh, coming down like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne, the throne of heaven, saying, God's home is among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. And if you'd underline that statement, God's, those statements, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. We're going to come back to that more than once in this message this morning. God himself will be with them. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And if that's good news to you this morning, would you say amen? Oh, man, that is great news. No more, listen to that again, no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All these things are gone forever. Heaven. That's important. There's a note in your outline. The world we live in now isn't like that. Our world now is cursed and fallen. We live in a cursed and fallen place. It's cursed and fallen because of sin. The Bible tells us that our earth was originally created very good. And Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, were placed in the Garden of Eden to tend it and care for it. And they walked and talked with God every day. His home was among them. But sin entered the equation because God values true love, and true love always demands a choice. I mean, when my, ring, my wife and I exchanged rings, it was always a choice. I wanted to know that she would choose me above all other men. And she said she would, and she gave me a ring, and I've worn it on my finger, and I've held her to it for 27 years. Same thing with her, because I love her, but it's a choice. She didn't marry me saying, well, you're the only one, so might as well. Okay, that would have kind of cheapened the experience, okay? And the same thing is true with our, in, in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had to choose, and God said, look, I love you. I want you to trust me that I will never tell you anything that isn't best for you. You can eat the fruit off of a million trees in this garden, but there's just one tree here. I don't want you to eat the fruit off of that tree. Just this one. Because the minute you do, that's when you'll know what it's like to disobey me. You'll have the knowledge, experiential knowledge of evil and of sin. And it's going to bring death into the world. Well, they ate of it. And so, sure enough, a curse was placed upon them and all of creation. Here are a few verses from Genesis 3 where the Lord is speaking to Adam and to Eve about this. And then God said to the woman, to Eve, I'll sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you'll give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Well, that's where that came from. Okay, and uh, <laughs> wow. And to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life, you'll struggle to scratch a living from it. It'll grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you'll have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you'll return. God had formed Adam from the ground, and he said, you're going to go back into it when you die. And that's why when I do a funeral and I'm standing at the graveside and there's a pile of fresh earth where the grave has just been dug, it's appropriate during the course of the service, the graveside service, grab a handful of dust and to place it upon the casket and say from ashes to ashes to ashes to ashes and dust to dust. From dust you were made and to dust you return. That's in this world. And that's why we have such deep sorrow because there's a great parting. People we love have died. 
And we experience not only the pain of grief, but the pain that comes with the illness many times or the injury that caused the death. And we all suffer together. We cry out and go, is there any relief from this? And if it was just the curse, if we just had the hope for this world, oh, that'd be a horrible thing. But there's a life application for you and me because we do have the hope of heaven. We must not give up hope. Hope. We have hope. Even when life in this world is hard and painful. Hope is expectation. You can write expectation under there. That's what hope is, by the way. It's an expectation that things aren't always going to be this way. And because we have God's word on this, our hope is based on truth. And we have an expectation that there will be something better And we have that promise there that in heaven there'll be no more sorrow or crying or pain. These things are all gone forever. There'll be no more tears. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about this. And he was encouraging Christians who'd been through a lot of hard times and suffered a great deal. And he said, that's why we never give up, folks. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and they won't last very long. I mean, what's 80 years compared with 80 billion years in heaven? Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look just at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. That's why we talk about heaven. Should I think about heaven? Yes, I should. So should you. Again, if I'm thinking about the career that I want after college, it impacts the way I study in college. If I think about the college I want to get into after high school, it impacts the way I study in high school. If I think about heaven and the way I'm going to live forever in heaven, it impacts the way I live now. And so even if times are hard, I have hope. Why do you have hope? Look at all this chaos. Look at all this sin. Look at tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and wars and disease. Yeah, that's not the end. There's heaven, and none of that will exist there. And through Christ, I have hope. And that's the note here. Jesus made it possible for me to escape the curse. But how do I get out of this cursed world? How do I get into heaven? Through Jesus. And by the way, above me or next to that, would you write your name? Your name? So for me, it would be Jesus made it possible for John to escape the curse. Jesus made it possible for Debbie, my wife. Jesus made it possible for you to escape the curse. I'm a, you won't be surprised by this, but during this series, I will mention the fact that Jesus is the way to heaven more than once. Is that okay with everybody? <laughs> okay. There's about 19 different ways I can come at it. Here's one you need to know. Paul talked about this in Galatians 3, that when Jesus was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, he's quoting Deuteronomy here, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus never sinned, but became sin for us. He took the curse that was due me. I'm one of Adam and Eve's kids. So are you. I'm a descendant of sinful people, and I have a sin nature of my own. And just as surely as they made the choice to eat of the forbidden fruit, there have been many times I've chosen to do things, and I knew they were wrong. There are other things I knew it was the right thing to do, and I didn't do it. And I'm not the only one. We've all done it. And we have proven that we are descendants of Adam and Eve. But Jesus came into the world, and he was born of a woman, Mary. 
And so he was fully human and fully God at the same time. And he made it possible for us to be freed of the curse because he took the curse upon himself when he hung on that cross. And so the hope of heaven isn't a vain hope. It's a real hope because of Jesus. And that's the hope that I proclaim to you this morning. Heaven is real. There's no more pain or sorrow or death there because this cursed and fallen world has been overcome by Jesus. The curse has been taken upon. He took our curse upon himself. So heaven's a place that's free of pain and sorrow and death. But going on in Revelation 21, it's also important to notice, and here's the second thing I want to tell you this morning, that heaven is God's home. Now I say this because as I mentioned at the beginning, we use the word heaven to describe a heavenly pizza or heavenly candy bars or a heavenly scent of a perfume or you know, people have a heavenly figure or whatever it might be, just anything that's excellent. Well, heaven is more than, than just a concept. Heaven is really God's home. And so when John was given a glimpse of this, here's what he wrote down. And this is describing, again, the new Jerusalem, the capital city. So an angel took me in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, and it shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone. The city wall was broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels, and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on the gates. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Its length and its width and its height were each 1,400 miles. And then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick. And the wall was made of jasper. And the city was pure gold, as clear as glass. And the wall of the city was built on foundation stones inlaid with 12 precious stones. The 12 gates were made of pearls, each gate from a single pearl. Those were big oysters, okay? And the main street was a pure gold. By the way, I just read you Revelation 21, 21, where you have pearly gates and streets of gold. If you ever wondered where those came from, where those expressions come from, right there. The pearly gates, the streets of gold, that verse. And then the main street was, as pure, was pure gold, as clear as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. And before you flip your page over, I want to make a couple of observations here real quickly. Twelve gates with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. Those were God's people in the Old Testament. Twelve precious foundation stones, the names of the twelve apostles, God's people representing God's people in the New Testament. All of God's faithful people, the people who were faithful and made sacrifices, in faith that a better sacrifice, a permanent sacrifice, would one day come. And those who have placed their faith in the Lamb of God, the permanent sacrifice, after he did come, they will all be there. So 12 is the number of God's people, Old Testament and New. And that's why there's 12s everywhere. This is the perfect place for God's people. 12 gates, 12 foundation stones, 12 angels, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. Even the dimensions of the city, it says 1,400 miles or 14, or. 1,400 miles, well, that would be 12,000 stadia in the old-time measurement. Those were even 12s. And the wall was 216 feet thick. Well, that would have been 144 cubits by the old measure, 12 by 12. So everything had 12s. It was just 
whose is the perfect place for God's people prepared for them. It was like the whole city was like an incredible jewel and the gold in it was refined so it was clear as glass. We don't even have a refinement technique like that here. And the whole city was precious and amazing and beyond description. But it's real important, and you can flip your outline over now, that there's no need for a temple in heaven. It's important to note this. And John had even written here, he said, uh, the city has no need for a temple. There was no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There was no need for sun or moon or stars because the Lamb of God... um, Uh, because the glory of God illuminates the city and the lamb is its lamp, the lamb is its light. Well, I want to remind us that when Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem uh, through instructions that God had handed down, uh, it was important to understand what he did inside the most holy place. Inside of the courtyard of the temple was a central building, and inside that building there there were two courts, a priestly court and then an inner sanctuary called the holy place, or I mean the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And here's how the Bible describes it in 1 Kings 6. Solomon prepared the inner sanctuary at the far end of the temple where the ark of the Lord's covenant would be placed. And the inner sanctuary was 30 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 30 feet high. And he overlaid it with solid gold. It was a cube. It was cubic and covered in gold. And so when John saw a picture of heaven, what he saw was, a cube, it wasn't 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. It was 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. A gigantic holy place. The ark was where the covenant between God and his people was. Remember, heaven, God says now, I mean, John says the voice on the throne said the, the home of God is now with his people. The most holy place is where the covenant between God and the people and his people were kept. When he, the Ten Commandments were given to Moses, God said, I want you to be my people and I'll be your God. And here are the terms. And he wrote the terms on stone tablets and they were placed in a sacred chest, the ark. And the ark was kept in that most holy place. And when sacrifices were made for, on behalf of the people, the high priest could go in once a year and sprinkle blood on the lid of that chest and make atonement for them. It was called the Day of Atonement. When sins were reconciled, so people, so holy God could coexist with his sinful, stubborn people. And people longed for the day when there could be a permanent sacrifice and not just the high priest walking in once a year, but anybody could walk in and anybody could have access to God because he's the source of light and life and truth and power forever. And Solomon built that majestic room. It had 15 foot tall angels guarding the ark inside of it. Everything was overlaid with gold and it all glowed with that. And when John saw a picture of this, he said, well, I want you to understand something. There's no temple in the city because the whole place is a giant holy of holies. I mean, we're all in the presence of God there. See, Jesus is our high priest. He paid for all the sin. So now you and I can walk right into God's presence. That's true now. We can already pray to God, but we live in a world now that's full of distractions and sin and We lose focus all the time. Anybody else besides me? But imagine if you could walk into, what what would happen if you lived in a place where you're free of all that? And you would have unlimited 24-hour day access. I mean, it has gates there. The gates are always open. And there's no night there, which means it's 24-7 access to God and his glory all the time. 
And so when John's writing this, he's going, I mean, you can just imagine him almost like sitting there, how do I describe this? The Holy of Holies is open all day and all night. In fact, there's no night there. It's like 7-Eleven, no locks on the doors. It's open all the time. I mean, can you imagine? You and I, sinful people, redeemed, now we can be in the presence of light and love and truth and God's glory forever. The whole place is a holy place. And we're a kingdom of priests. Everybody in the whole place is rightly related with him. Amazing. And there's a life application from this, and I want us to understand this. If we don't love Jesus, then we don't want to go to heaven. Because see, Jesus is at the heart of heaven. The whole place is a holy place. If you don't want to go into the holy place and you don't want to be rightly related with the one who's the source of all light and love and joy and peace, if you want to try to make things your own way, well, then you don't want the heaven described in the Bible. And that's why I'm bringing up the point that heaven is God's home because there's a lot of misinformation out there in our selfish, self-centered culture We have begun to believe, and we talk this way all the time, that heaven is just this eternal amusement park or this eternal club med where God is our bellboy and he just keeps bringing us chocolate and we can eat it forever and never get fat. And we can play golf and always shoot under par. And people talk this way. I mean, I got to tell you, I want to make sure that we're understanding that this is God's home. And if I don't want to go know God, then I don't want to go to heaven. C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and Mere Christianity and all this, he said, if you don't love Jesus, then going to heaven would be like a man who's allergic to water being dropped in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. That's all there is. I mean, if you don't want Jesus, you don't want heaven. And God's never going to drag people who don't love him kicking and screaming into heaven. So let's get this notion out. Well, I can go to heaven. I want to go to heaven. And for me, Jesus is the way. But for you, you might find another way. Because heaven, Jesus really isn't the central part of heaven. He's just kind of incidental there. Because that's the way we treat him in our culture. We go to church, Christmas, Easter, Mother's Day. I mean, if we need an extra dose. But most of the time, we don't even think about him. And we think, well, this is just going to be an extension. No, everything's being made new. There'll be no more sorrow, pain, sin, death, none of that. And the only people that will be there are the people who truly want to love God. Why else would you even want to go there? I mean, listen to John 14. Now it'll make more sense. Shortly before he was crucified, Jesus was meeting with his disciples and he said, look, there's more than enough room in my father's home. He's talking about heaven here. If this were not so, I would have told you, why would I have told you that I'm going to go prepare a place for you? When everything's ready, then I'll come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Remember? God's home is now among his people. He'll be with them and they will be his people. I'm going to get things ready so everything, so you can always be with me where I am. That's why I'm doing this. And now you know the way to where I'm going. And I love Thomas because Thomas said exactly what I would have said. No, we don't, Lord. We don't have any idea where you're going. <laughs> How can we know the way? What are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus told Thomas, Thomas, I am the way. I'm the truth and the life. And no one come to the fa- can come to the Father except through me. I'm taking the curse upon myself. I'll be cursed so you can be blessed. I'll die so you can live. I'll pay a penalty that you owe so you can go free. 
this is my father's house and I'm preparing it so you'll be with me. Not, this is an eternal amusement park where I'll be a cosmic bellhop for you forever. I'll give you a billion wishes and then you can just make any wish you want and be selfish and self-centered, more selfish and self-centered there than you even are here. And if you think I'm coming across strong on this, well, you try doing funerals and people say the most ridiculous things. They'll get up there and go, well, you know, my uncle, he, he didn't read the Bible and he didn't pray. I mean, he never went to church, never did anything kind for anybody, but you know, he didn't kill anybody. So I guess he's up there driving that tractor on that great big field in the sky. Well, my mom, she never prayed. She didn't have any favorite hymns. She never mentioned God once in her life. Swore a lot, but I know she's making biscuits on that big oven in the sky. And people talk like this all the time. Well, what are we talking about here? When John got up there, he goes, yeah, there's a big golf course in the sky and there's big tractors and big ovens. It's not what he said. You know what he said? He said, this is the bride of God. Prepared like the city was like a bride prepared for her husband. These are the people who long to be. That's what a bride wants to be with her husband. These are the people. This is the home of the people. Old Testament knew all the faithful people who said, I want God more than anything else. And that's heaven. And if you don't want that, then you don't want to go to heaven. And so it's absurd to me that we talk about this. Well, I don't see why Christians should say it's only limited to Christians. Only limited to Christians? Yeah, I mean, I want to go to a place where I can play golf forever and do all these things. Well, that's not what heaven's about. Heaven's about being one with God forever. It'll be a place of amazing beauty and lots of wonderful things. And we'll talk about those in the weeks to come. But this is the main point. I mean, I invite you to over to my house for dinner and you go, well, I might come. What's for dinner? What are you serving? I think you missed the point. Yeah, I'm not coming unless the food's good because I don't really want to talk to you. Well, the whole point of coming to my house is to be with me. Look, Revelation 21, 27 says, nothing evil will be allowed to enter heaven, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What lamb? The lamb who was slain, Jesus, the sacrificial lamb who died for you and me. That's why Jesus is the only way. It's his house. And we need to make sure we understand that. Heaven is God's home. It's not some place where we all just do whatever we want forever. So heaven is a place that's free of pain, sorrow, and death. Heaven is God's home. Point three, heaven is where the deepest desires of our souls will be satisfied forever. I don't miss this either. Again, Revelation 21. Then the one on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And we're getting our information from the Bible here. It's trustworthy and true, not from some website where people make junk up. And he also said, it is finished. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. I will be their God and they will be my children. Okay, if you and I are going to be satisfied in this in heaven, well, it's because Jesus is the beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega is the A and Z in the Greek alphabet. Jesus said, rivers of life flow out of me. I'm the living water. You drink of me, you'll never be thirsty again. In heaven, there's a river of life. You can drink all you want. 
rich, abundant, eternal life. And you contrast that again with our fallen world, and here's the note here, you and I will never, and please put this in caps, never be satisfied by the things of this world. Some of you text in caps, by the way. Do you know that sounds like shouting when you read that? I'm coming at 830. Okay. Well, good. Okay. I'm glad. But this one, I want you to say it in caps because we will never, and I do want to emphasize this, we will never be satisfied by the things of this world. Solomon, the same guy who built the Holy of Holies, 30 by 30 by 30, covered in gold. I mean, you know, the, the heavenly city was a cube with streets of gold. The Holy of Holies was a cube with walls and floors of gold. Supposed to get the connection. Same guy who built all that as a shadow of the things that were in heaven was given incredible wisdom by God, supernatural wisdom, wiser than any person who ever lived. And he used his wisdom and he said, you know, I'm going to find out how much meaning I can discover. I've got more wisdom than anybody else. I'm going to apply this and see how much meaning I can discover on my own. Let's run up the flagpole, see how far it goes. And so here's what he did. Ecclesiastes 2. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and planting beautiful vineyards. I also enlarged herds and flocks. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women. I had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything that I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere because it wasn't permanent. I mean, you understand, even hard work didn't satisfy because he'd build up all these beautiful vineyards, if you keep reading, and all this stuff that he built. And he said, but then one day I looked in a mirror and realized I was getting old. And I'm going to have to leave it to somebody, and I don't know if my son's going to take care of it or not. And his son didn't, by the way, squandered it. I remember my dad's farm. Uh, my dad worked so hard on the farm. I grew up and kept it meticulously. I mean, just made it beautiful. And I went back a few years ago. My, my mom and dad had passed away. And years before that, they'd sold the farm. And um, some of the things that he had taken care of so much, they had fallen into disrepair, and I could barely stand it. And so we can work really hard, and then everything fades away. And so this is one of the arguments, by the way, this is a great argument for the existence of heaven. When we have desires that cannot be dissatisfied in this world, maybe it's because we're built for another world. Maybe it's because we're made for heaven. In fact, on the back of your bulletin, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis. I'd mentioned him earlier. I guess this is C.S. Lewis Day. Here's a quote. It's under point four in the Connect Group discussion questions. The Christian says... Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. And if that's so, then I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, to never make the mistake, never to mistake them 
for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or an echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. We're never going to be satisfied in this, in this world. Well, John, that was Solomon. That was 3,000 years ago. Times have changed. No, they haven't. Let me quote that great theologian, Mick Jagger. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no satisfaction. Oh, no, no, no. Hey, hey, hey. That's what I say. That's what he said. Now, look, if anybody knew about riches and parties and women and fame, wouldn't Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones know? I think they tried a lot of the same stuff that Solomon did, and they couldn't get no satisfaction. Though they tried, and they tried, and they tried, and they tried. Oh, no, no, no. And I'm simply telling you that this is where we are. And the reason we won't find satisfaction in this world is because we were designed for another. We're designed for that relationship with God. In heaven, we're in the most holy place together with God forever. I mean, what we desire, I mean, see, it's not just the bad marriages that you could say, well, the reason people desire better relationships is they're in a bad marriage here. No, even if you have a great marriage here, because you have this great marriage and it lasts for 40 years and then your spouse dies and you go, what was that? I want a relationship that went on forever. Even if you achieved a lot in this world, then you die and you have to leave it to somebody else. I want to be able to go on being a part of something wonderful forever. That's not possible here. This world is cursed and fallen. Jesus has made it possible to be a part of that in heaven. And that's why we come to him. But heaven's not a place where we just get whatever we want. Heaven's a place where we're one with the source of life and love, the things the desires that we've always longed for. And that brings us to the last life application. Oh, by the way, if, any, if, if anybody ever is asking you, do you think people up in heaven ever long to come back here? And there's even movies that talk about that and other things. No. Isaiah 65, 17, God speaking, look, I'm creating new heavens and new earth and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. No. Life application, we must remember that this world is not our home. That's the last application for today. This world is not our home. Would you say that with me? This world is not our home. One more time. This world is not our home. You know, I think, I think we need to put that on a three-by-five card and tape it to the mirror where we shave or get dressed in the morning. And every day I go, this world's not my home. Remember, we think about college so we study better in high school. We think about a career so we study better in college. We think about heaven, so we live better now. This world is not my home. Then it makes sense of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6. Don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths and, and corroded by rust, or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven. If you wonder about that, that's coming in two weeks. Got a whole lesson on it, okay? Stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from moths and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is is the place where you will most want to be and end up being. And people who don't want to be with God and want selfish stuff, they want to stay here. They think that if they just get a bigger house and more women and more pleasure, then they'll finally be happy. If they just get over the next hill, they'll finally arrive. And every time they get over the hill, there's always another hill. 
Dear friends, I warn you, Peter said, as temporary residents and foreigners in this world, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. We're created for heaven. And the whole reason these descriptions are here is so we can begin to focus on today why God is allowing things to come into our lives so we can make sense of it. Oh, he's preparing me for heaven. And I don't need all this stuff. I'm not taking it to heaven anyway. I mean, that's the story of the chemist. You know, it's like the story of the chemist who uh, was brilliant, Nobel Prize winning guy, and um, he figured out a way to take gold with him to heaven. So he converted his wealth to gold, performed a chemical uh, procedure, to convert it and take it with him, put it in a briefcase. And when he died, he took the briefcase with him. Sure enough, when he approached the pearly gates, he had the briefcase full of gold with him. And he talked to Peter and he said, wow, this place is better than I ever thought. This is amazing. And Peter said, come on in. And he said, but I got one question for you. Why are you bringing a briefcase of asphalt? In heaven, gold is asphalt. You walk on it there. The things that are most precious here, it's commonplace there. It's infinitely better. So why do I focus so much here? Maybe it's because I don't think about where I'm going. And maybe if I thought more about heaven, then I'd focus better on the studies God has for me today while I'm here so I can be ready to graduate. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you that we have the opportunity to be here today. And I thank you for your word that guides us in how we think about heaven. Forgive us, Lord, for being so selfish and self-centered when it comes to heaven. We think that heaven's a place where we can just indulge in whatever our selfish desires are and everybody else will indulge in theirs and you're not even a part of it. Or if you are a part of it, you're just the guy who pays for it all. And I don't know, even know why anybody would want to do that. I don't know why you'd want to do that, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that you will challenge us as we think about heaven. Lord, we come to you and we want a right relationship with you because we're sinners and we don't know the right way without your guidance. Lord, we're sinners and we're going to do rebellious and stubborn and wicked things unless you change us. Lord, we're sinners and we deserve the punishment of death unless you pay it for us so we can live forever. We're sinners and you're not. You're the source of life and forgiveness and truth. And so, Lord, of course we want to spend eternity with you. If you haven't told the Lord lately that you love him, would you tell him that right now and say, Lord, I love you. And Lord, I pray that you will use the struggles and trials of today to prepare me for heaven when my time comes. I pray, Lord, you'd remind me that this world is not my home. So I won't give up hope when times are hard and I won't get attached to worldly things when times are good. Thank you for the promise of heaven, Lord. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.